Father, thank you for the opportunity of praising you together as an assembly. This is a privilege that we take for granted that our forefathers died to do and had to hide to do. And around the world today, many are hiding as they worship you in secret in their assembly. So, Father, you've given us this great privilege, and I thank you for every uh, person who's come to share together now around your word. And would you make it applicable to our lives and hearts so that we're willing to obey? And then I pray that you would allow us to have the courage to share the gospel with those we encounter and to share with those in need. Help us to never forget we do have so much, and so many people have so little. And so we pray that you do a work in our heart in Jesus' name. Amen. When you decide to study through uh, the book of Proverbs, even though you, like uh, me, jump around a bit, sooner or later you're confronted with the subject of parental authority. And more uh, specifically, the disciplining of your children. You talk about a controversial subject, this would be one of them. There are numerous proverbs in Solomon's collection that most people you live around or work around uh, would consider them terribly out of date and really out of touch. Proverbs like, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Proverbs 13, 24. Or another one that, that says, folly is bound up in the heart of a child. But the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Proverbs twenty-two, fifteen. Most people today would say, well, no wonder that stuff is in the Old Testament. That is ancient history. That's where it belongs. Certainly not in our sophisticated era of the 21st century. Here's an interesting proverb. It goes like this, Proverbs 29, 15. The rod and reproof give wisdom. But a child left to himself will lead to his mother's shame. You know, no matter how conservative or liberal, churched or unchurched, um, converted to Christ or atheist, everybody knows intuitively that a child left to himself will ultimately bring shame on his mother and father. I mean, no, no mom has ever bragged at a PTA meeting. Yeah, my, my Cindy dropped out at 10th grade and she's now working two jobs to keep her drug habit up. We're, we're so proud of her. No, not at all. No one has ever said, my son, you know, he, he doesn't follow our advice. He doesn't listen to us. And he's now on the corner of 401 and 1010 panhandling for money. We're, that, that's our son. We're so proud of him. No. Every parent, whether they think the Word of God should be relegated to ancient history or not, knows intuitively that their child is better off if they walk in a certain way that we would say is the way of wisdom. And we know this wisdom is from God's Word. I want you to see for yourself that one particular proverb again. Turn to chapter 29, verse 15. And let me read it. It might come as a surprise to you. We certainly don't think of it this way. And frankly, until my study, I hadn't thought of it this way either. I knew it did it, but I hadn't seen it quite like this before. He says, the rod and reproof give wisdom. The rod and reproof give wisdom. Proverbs twenty nine fifteen a 
Now, according to Solomon, if you as the parent are not only going to hunt for hidden treasures of wisdom, but help your child in that hunt for wisdom, that treasure as well. Solomon said here in this text that that the rod literally serves as part of the treasure map to lead the way to wisdom. Imagine that. Let me put it to you this way. Wisdom is found in the woodshed. Now, we wouldn't necessarily think of it that way, but that's exactly what he says. We'll balance this out as we go along, but you ought to know that the Hebrew word for rod, yasar, can be translated literally a club. That's serious business. My mom didn't know that. She thought it meant a switch. And she would send me out and my three brothers, who deserved it more than I ever did, but she'd send us out that kitchen side door, out to where that little tree was, and she'd tell us to pick out the switch that she would then use on our little bare legs. She, she believed this kind of verse. I'm just glad she didn't know any Hebrew. <laughs> she didn't know it meant club. She thought it meant a switch. She would have taken it literally, being the good dispensationalist she is. <laughs> the truth is, today, the, the average parent will do anything but spank their child. In fact, in our culture, even to say that in public might be dangerous. But I'm going to say it anyway, because it's in the Word. And you can't go through Proverbs without encountering these truths. Most people would say that spanking a child will teach them to hit other children. Trust me, your child knows how to hit other children, whether you spank them or not. Okay? In fact, with all the spankings I received, I never once challenged some kid I didn't like in fifth grade. Hey, after school, meet me in the playground and I'm going to give you a spanking. My parents taught me how to do that and I'm going to do that to you. No. (laughs) Never crossed my mind to do to somebody what my parents did to me. Perhaps uh, parents refuse to admit their child needs correction. So they will argue with the the teacher, with the principal, uh, with the youth leader, later with the policeman. Perhaps it's nothing more than pride. It is embarrassing. There is a certain unwillingness to face the humiliation of a child in need of correction. And they always do it at the most inopportune times, in the middle of Walmart or wherever. Listen, we all want our children to be at the head of the class. That's our, that's our little dream. It's our little plan. Little Johnny's going to be at the head of the class. Certainly he isn't going to be sent to the corner of the class or, or expelled from class. Not my child. Maybe you have struggled with these proverbs that we're going to look at because you came from a home where discipline was nothing more than physical abuse. Where hate and and anger just spilled over and spankings became beatings. Listen, there is a vast difference between a spanking and a beating. In fact, I have a few books I want to recommend for every parent with a son or daughter still at home. Several. Let me just stop here for a moment and give you some titles. One is entitled Shepherding a Child's Heart by Ted Tripp. For moms who would like a little more information, especially in dealing with younger children, uh, one woman by the name of Ginger Plowman wrote um, an excellent little book entitled Don't Make Me Count to Three. Can you identify with that threat? (laughs) 
It's an excellent book. I've enjoyed reading these books this week in preparation for our study. In fact, the reason I'm recommending them is because we're just going to touch on the subject and you're going to want more information perhaps on the subject of discipline. One more while I'm at it. There's an excellent book by Chuck Swindoll called Family Life. It was written two years after our twins were born and it covers a variety of issues. It's an excellent book. Mine is all dog-eared and and, uh, marked up. In Swindoll's work, he quotes Dr. Albert Siegel, who wrote this in the Stanford Observer, and I quote, When it comes to rearing children, every society is only 20 years away from total anarchy. 20 years is all we have to accomplish the task of civilizing the infants who are born into our midst every year. These savages know nothing of our language, our culture, our religion, our values, our interpersonal dynamics. The infant is totally ignorant of democracy, respect, decency, honesty, customs, conventions, and manners. The barbarian must be tamed if civilization is to survive. Isn't that good? Obviously, this falls short of true and full reformation because you can have educated and self-controlled and polite people destroy society as quickly as a barbarian. But our discipline should deal not only with behavior, but attitude and spirit and heart. Uh, We understand the greater issue is the corruption of the heart and the sin of, of fallen creatures who are in desperate need of redemption and then spiritual growth. For that reason, I can remember as a child being paid an allowance if I did chores, but only if I did the chores with the right attitude. They were after reformation, not simply behavior. This is why Solomon writes in Proverbs 29, 15 here that it isn't just the rod, it's reproof. You notice that? It's correction, verbal correction that reaches the heart. And the door is opened by means of the rod. The Lord said in Luke chapter 6, verse 45, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. But the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. You see, that's a way of reminding every parent that the heart is the heart of the issue. A child's misbehavior is reflecting their heart. So often we get sidetracked as parents with, with behavior that we overlook belief. They actually believe that lying may be acceptable. They actually believe that obedience is optional, and as they grow up, they're testing uh, the waters. They, they believe that cheating may be permissible, and they're surrounded by people who say it is permissible. It's easy to think if, if we can just get them to stop doing those things, that we are successful. Now, that was the point of Christ's warning to the Pharisees. They kept all the rules. They looked good. They were at the head of the class. They lived clean lives, but they spoke of God with respectful lips, which had nothing to do with reverential hearts. A change in behavior that does not stem from a change in heart is not commended by Christ. It is condemned as hypocrisy. We can raise little hypocrites very easily. 
Whether we want to admit it or not, Solomon was telling the truth. In fact, go back to chapter 22 and and look at verse 15. He says there, folly is bound up in the heart of a child. It's just bound up. He comes packaged with folly or foolishness. In other words, they are born with the ability to lie, to cheat, to disobey, to declare their own will and demand their own way. And, and at a very early age, they demand to know who around here is big enough to take me on. And they might only be eight months old. And they're saying that. They want to know who's in charge. Several years ago, the Minnesota Crime Commission released an interesting uh, report on the untamed child. I was born in Minnesota. It makes me wonder if my birth prompted this report. But at any rate, here's their report. Actually, before I read it, I can't believe that this would ever be reported in the 21st century. Probably wouldn't be. But it was released to the public in the 1980s. And I quote, Every baby starts life as a little savage. For all the new moms at Colonial, yours are little angels. He's talking about somebody else here. He is completely selfish and self-centered. He wants what he wants when he wants it. His bottle, his mother's attention, his playmate's toy, his uncle's watch. Deny these and he seethes with rage that would be murderous were he not so helpless. This means that all children, not just certain children, are born delinquent. If permitted to continue in the self-centered world of infancy, given free reign to his impulsive actions as he grows, every child will grow into some form of criminal. Frankly put, mom and dad, we are dealing with little sinners who came into the world with a fallen, depraved heart, corrupted heart. And they are capable of committing anything under the sun, given the time, the experience, the availability, the strength, and the resources. That's what Solomon says when he says that that, that folly is bound up in the heart of a child. It's there. You didn't get the wrong baby at the hospital. You know, the one you brought home came packaged with folly. The Hebrew word for folly literally refers to Moral corruption, if you could imagine that. Moral deficiency. Inability to make godly judgment with pure reason. That's what the Hebrew word means. So you never have to teach them how to lie, and you prove his point. You have to discipline them to be what? Honest. You never have to teach them to be selfish. You have to teach them to share. You never have to teach them to assert themselves. You have to teach them to submit to authority. And long before they speak, they test your authority. You tell that seven-month-old, honey, don't touch that. And what will she do? That little honey will look at you right in the eyes, and she will not even blink. And she'll reach out her hand, and she'll say, Who do you think's the boss around here? Didn't you get the memo? (laughs) At seven months old, they're testing. Why? Because their hearts are bound up in folly. Long before they can articulate rebellion, they challenge your authority and they act it out. So what are you going to do in response? Solomon gives parents hope. 
the end of that proverb in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 15, he says, here's the solution. Discipline will drive it from him. Now, not overnight, not quickly, just as Christ hasn't driven from your heart folly, rebellion, assertion, and pride, but he has committed himself to daily disciplining those whom he loves. And you know as well as I do, he does not leave you alone, and he does not leave me alone because the task isn't finished. But you are actually, as a parent, initiating the process that God will take over one day in their lives. And if you have taught them to listen to you, you are teaching them to listen to him one day. Let me, let me speak as practically as I, I can about this subject. In fact, I thought about it. As I thought about this, it, it struck me. No pun intended there. I have never taught on the subject of discipline in 21 years, this clearly. And all the young people are saying, why now did you decide? Well, it's probably about time. Let me lay down some ground rules for biblical discipline. Call it simply spanking your child. First of all, you need to understand the difference between physical abuse and a painful spanking. If, uh, if you have a sheet of paper, you could draw a line right down the middle of it, and on one side, write the word abuse, and on the other side, write discipline. And let me give you some characteristics to compare and contrast. Abuse is unprovoked and unexpected. Discipline is expected for certain behavior. You've already made it clear. You've already laid down the rules. There are no surprises. Abuse is, is unexpected. You never know, wham, when you're going to get it or why. Discipline is to be expected for certain behavior. Abuse is motivated through hatred and anger. Discipline is prompted by love and concern. Someone who's being abused doesn't know if their parent loves them or not. In fact, they're probably convinced they don't. Where with discipline, it's prompted by love and concern, and that is clearly communicated. Abuse then produces terror Discipline produces security. Abuse leaves physical scars. Discipline is painful, but it leaves no scars. Abuse creates resentment against authority. In fact, it only deepens that kind of resentment against authority. Discipline creates respect for authority. Abuse resolves neither behavior or heart attitude. Discipline resolves, forgives, and forgets. Uh, remember, discipline here in Proverbs twenty-two fifteen goes hand in hand with plenty of communication or reproof, correction. That's instruction. So distinguish, number one, between abuse and discipline. Secondly, distinguish between immaturity and disobedience. You know, maybe they really did forget. Maybe they did get sidetracked with that frog or the dog in the backyard. Or maybe they really did completely overlook the time. Third, distinguish the difference between inability and defiance. 
maybe they really can't fulfill that task. For them, cleaning out the shed might be something that completely overwhelms them, and they're not sure where to start and how to do it. And it's an issue of inability, not defiance. If you are certain it is indeed an act of disobedience or disrespect or deception, and by the way, those are the three D's around our household that require spanking, disobedience, disrespect, or deception, then what happens next is you are headed toward the woodshed with your child. Let me give you five guidelines for for a uh, productive trip to the woodshed. First of all, tell your child what their offense is and what their punishment will be. This eliminates, by the way, the possibility of spanking them in the heat of anger uh, in the moment. It allows for communication where you can tell them what the punishment is and why it's coming. It, It allows the child to understand the issue at hand and that it isn't their parents' emotions or anger. It is their own sinful behavior or actions. Secondly, deliver the spanking. It might be three swats, depending on age, or ten licks with a belt on on the place that God created for for discipline. comes with extra padding. It's an amazing creation of His. Uh, (laughs) Listen, slapping their face or punching them is, is not the use of a rod. In fact, it will never yield the intimacy and closeness that comes after proper discipline is administered. Why? Because, because your hand didn't create the painful blow. It, it held an inanimate object that created the pain. And in this mystery of discipline, the child comes to fear the leather strap or the switch or the paddle. They do not come to fear your hand. Third, after the spanking, give them time to think and, and recover. Depending on their age, you might leave the room. If they're older, leave the room. Give them time to think about it. The younger they are, the more immediately they need the reassurance of your love. Uh, I remember when our college-age daughter, all, all the children are different. All of them respond differently. Uh, but our college-age daughter, when she's a little girl, immediately after spanking, she'd raise her arms because she was ready for the forgiveness and the prayer and the hug and... And uh, she had gotten it. And that happened immediately. Others, we, we exiled to Siberia for two years before they finally got it. <laughs> you thought they were in college. Oh, no, I'm teasing. They are. <laughs> uh, number four, in either case, young or old, if there's time, how long that time is. But, but fourth, come back. You need to explain what God's Word says about their behavior their attitude, their sin. It's a very personal conversation. It deals with their heart. In fact, after punishment, they are more open and ready to hear about the heart issue than before. Now, if all you were interested in was, you know, delivering pain, I'm going to make you remember that. Uh, You'll never forget this. You won't be able to sit down for a month. That's all we were interested in. How many of you have heard that, by the way? Okay, all of us. If that's all we were interested in, well, we're finished. But pain in discipline, in the mystery of discipline, merely acts as a doorway through which the heart is now tender and open to hear 
biblical truth. It's not unusual for me to have my Bible or to quote a verse of Scripture or to take them to some passage where I can tell them what the enemy is really wanting to do in their lives because it's a much bigger issue than a lie. It's a much bigger issue than taking that object. It's a much bigger issue than disrespecting me or their mother or some leader. It may very well be a lifelong or even an eternal issue. This is why Solomon wrote, and if you're still not convinced, listen to this proverb. If you strike him with the rod, you will save his soul from death. Proverbs 23, 14. This is a general principle that normally means discipline protects your children from greater harm. You're protecting them from greater pain. That's why when you spank them, when they disobey and run out into the street, why? You're, you're, you're associating pain with their disobedience, which may very well save them from greater pain, maybe even death. You're also, for those that are older, teaching them the principle of what one author called the harvest mentality, that is they're learning that they really do reap what they sow. And so after instructing them with the Scriptures and why this is a bigger issue and what, what Satan is trying to do in your heart and life and how he's trying to, to get you to walk down this path and let me show you where that path is going to lead. Then you pray with them. They ask the Lord for forgiveness because they've sinned against him primarily. And then you pray, thanking God for forgiveness. And I never fail when, I, when I'm praying and I hear my child pray, I'm usually sitting there thanking God for his grace in my own life that he forgives me. Here's the final step. After prayer, don't forget a hug and words that, that clearly communicate, I love you and I have forgiven you. This is the perfect resolution to biblical discipline. And, and I have found that timeouts and no TV and no computer and all this other stuff doesn't quite bring to that kind of resolution what discipline does. I remember getting spankings from my father. Let me tell you, I, I was one of those children that had to have a spanking every day. And um, I just talked to my mother, bless her heart, those wrinkles, I put every one of those on her face. But I can remember getting a spanking from my father, and 15 minutes later, I'd be laughing with him, playing basketball out in the backyard. It was resolved. It was over. It was never a question of his love for me. I never, I never thought he didn't love me. I just knew he loved Christ first. And I was second or third or fourth down the line I knew he was obeying the word of God. And so I grew in respect for him because of it, not the other way around. I knew that my mother and father were ultimately demonstrating love for Christ. And then for me. They were willing to obey Christ even though it sent the house in turmoil for those 15, 30, 45 minutes. He was first, not me. I never had the impression that I was first in their lives. Praise God for that. This is exactly this love for your child, though, that comes through discipline. Listen to this proverb, he who spares the rod hates 
his son. But he who loves him disciplines him diligently. Proverbs 13, 24. That's the truth. No matter how you slice it, true love leads you down this path, which may lead you into the woodshed from time to time. Let me, let me wrap up our study with two, two timeless truths about this subject. Number one, there has never been an easy time to raise children. Just ask Adam and Eve. Just ask uh, Eli. Later, uh, Samuel. Ask David and Solomon. Ask Mary and Joseph and their brood of children that they had after Jesus Christ. All of them uh, defiantly refusing to follow the claims of Christ until after his resurrection. The turmoil in that home would have been unbelievable. No century, no generation has been without difficulty and danger and temptation. There's never a perfect world. There's never a perfect time to be a parent because we happen to live in a fallen world. So don't hide behind this. Well, it's just so much tougher now. No, the standard is still purity and holy living. And it's never been easy. Certainly, these are challenging times. There's no question about that. Listen to what Carl Zimmerman wrote as he talked about the American culture falling into what he called the final stages of disintegration. By the way, he's an unbeliever. It's interesting when an unbeliever says things like this. He's a sociologist and a historian, and he studied cultures, and he it's kind of like Gibbons in the fall, rise and fall of the Roman Empire. He, he looked at cultures and what those common characteristics were that caused a culture to disintegrate. He observed in decaying cultures these common characteristics. One, an increased ability to divorce without cause. Number two, the elimination of meaning in the marriage ceremony. Number three, pessimism concerning earlier figures in their culture who had earlier been considered heroic. Number four, the breaking down of inhibitions regarding adultery. Number five, the revolt of the youth against parents. Number six, a rapid rise in juvenile delinquency. Number seven, a common acceptance of all forms of sexual perversion. Now get this, Dr. Zimmerman wrote this in 1947. Today, Every single day in America, 1,000 unwed teenage girls become mothers. 1,106 teenage girls get abortions every day. 4,219 teenagers contract sexually transmitted diseases, several of them incurable, and the media will never spill the secret. You just now see the commercials. Every day, 1,000 adolescents take their first drink of alcohol, most often from their own refrigerator at home. 135,000 students bring guns or other weapons to school. Every day, 3,610 teenagers are assaulted. Every day, on average, 80 are raped. 
Every day, 2,200 of them drop out of high school. After those statistics, who wouldn't? Every day, six of them take their own lives. If we don't provide the safeguards and the standards and the hope and the relationship, if we don't set up the fence posts and protective boundaries, if we don't help them know which way to navigate, their world will do it for them and they will do it for themselves. Many will be led to despair and confusion with broken hearts and broken dreams and broken bodies. Listen to one paraphrase of Proverbs 19:18. Discipline your children while they are young enough to learn. If you don't, you are helping them destroy themselves. Proverbs 19:18. Let me read that again. Discipline your children while they are young enough to learn. If you don't, you are helping them along the way of self-destruction. Let me give you one more truth. This leads me to the second truth. Yes, there's never been an easy time to raise children, but secondly, there has never been a better time to shepherd your children than now. Maybe maybe after a study like this, you're thinking, this is going to bring disruption and chaos. I mean, we're going to have a fight on our hands all the time. Listen, take it by faith. Take it by faith. Get additional good and godly counsel. In fact, don't go home tonight and say, all right, get in here, Johnny. You know, Pastor Davey said, here's the rod. Whack. Please don't do that. I want them to love me. (laughs) Take your time. Clearly communicate that these three things or four things or two things or whatever they are, these are non-negotiables. These infractions will lead to discipline and, and maybe show them in the scriptures some of these proverbs that you've underlined. And then watch. Then watch. Watch what Solomon promised to those who will follow Christ in applying biblical discipline in their home. Listen to this proverb Discipline your son, and he will give you peace. You don't really expect that, do you? Discipline your son, and he is going to make you miserable. No. Discipline your son, and he will give you peace. Not chaos, not turmoil, but peace. So now's the time to start. There has never been a better time to shepherd your children as a loving, authoritative parent than than now. There's never been a more critical time to start teaching the truth and holding the standard and developing the relationship and communicating God's Word and lovingly disciplining sin than now. My friend, I I, I trust that God will give us all courage and faith and trust in His Word to obey it and to follow it and to demonstrate it and to model it and then to shepherd our children to do what they see mom and dad doing. And they ought to see us confessing, too. And they ought to see us apologizing, too. And they ought to see us going to the Lord, too. And they ought to see us admitting our failure, too. Give them hope.
and they will give you peace. Father, thank you for this truth. Um, Thank you for delivering to us Proverbs, so many of them having to do with this very difficult subject. I pray for every mom and dad. No question in my mind that the very fact they're here speaks of their desire to be men and women of the book. And the young people who are here are, by their own presence, demonstrating their desire to be young men and women of, of this truth, who follow you, who follow after Christ. This is an area, Lord, in our culture now, as you fully know, makes us at, at odds with our culture, more and more so viewed as strange. And yet it gives us an opportunity to develop a standard and a principle, uh, an activity, a loving relationship that the world would look at and admire. They don't know the mechanisms behind it all, but they are mystified at respectful children. They are mystified at a loving father who loves Christ first and who loves his family, who manages his children. They're mystified at a woman who yields to her husband's authority. They're mystified at a mother who would discipline a child lovingly. And so, Father, coming to your word, we recognize that we're hearing things that we will not hear anywhere else but from your truth. And so I pray that this would burrow its way into our hearts and lives and make a difference for your glory's sake. As we shepherd our children, as we shepherd one another, as we grow together in this family of God, Be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.